Well, everyone loves a good story. For whatever reason, we humans have such a greater appetite for stories than plain old textbook information. Maybe it's because stories play into our imagination and for that reason are so much easier to remember. We see this all the time with sermons. How often do you, you hear a sermon weeks later, you can't really remember much of what was said, but you do remember that one illustration or story that it gets us all the time. We just like stories. This might explain why God chose to communicate to us in his word mostly through stories. A huge portion of the Bible comes in narrative. These stories are true and they teach truth, but in an easier way to remember and understand. Stories just leave behind a greater impact. For example, I could tell you slow and steady wins the race, or I could tell you the story of the tortoise and the hare. In the end, both would communicate the same truth, but you'd probably end up remembering the story in a lasting impact. You know, Aesop, who wrote that famous short story, he's a very skilled storyteller writing in the 500s B.C., and dozens of his writings were compiled into the, the equally famous Aesop's fables. They all have pretty much the same character. They're short stories, usually personifying some animal, and they, ha- they tell some moral lesson. They teach a moral lesson. Now, he could have just listed out dozens of moral lessons, but then we probably wouldn't be still talking about them 2,500 years later. We remember them for a reason. For example, you probably still remember, remember the, the story of the goose and the golden egg. One, man, one day a man finds a yellow egg under his goose and picks it up. It's heavy as lead. He thinks a trick is being played on him. He almost throws it out, decides to take it home. And he finds out it is, in fact, a golden egg. He sells it, makes a ton of money. Each morning he gets a golden egg and he sells them. And he quickly becomes rich from these golden eggs. But the richer he gets, the greedier he gets. Eventually he decides he wants all the gold at once, not one a day. So he decides to kill the goose and open it up, and he finds nothing. And the moral of the story, of course, is that greed leads to ruin. Well, like I said, stories have a special way of communicating truth in a memorable fashion. And some stories can be life-changing. And that's very much the case with the Bible. Scripture records several true-to-life stories of past events. Yet they're divinely orchestrated and recorded in order to communicate God's message to us, which ultimately is meant to change our lives. And of all the stories in the Bible, none is truer or more impactful than that of of Christ himself. Even those who are not religious and don't believe in God are still, in a way, confronted and compelled by the story of Jesus. And when you realize it's true, it it becomes all the more life-changing. The early church really latched on to the stories of Jesus. They didn't have a personal copy of the scriptures. Each local church just had a manuscript or two. And so they would gather together and listen to the the story of Jesus. And the four gospels especially helped the early church really remember and memorize in their story format the life of Jesus. To help them remember even more, they turned some of the stories of Christ into little hymns. And some of these early Christian hymns, actually many believe, made their way into later New Testament writings. In fact, we may have an example of one of those early hymns in our text for this morning, which is found in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. So you can open up there now. Philippians 2. We've been talking a lot about Philippians 2 the past few weeks, of course, in this, in this book. 
and the subject of unity through humility. It's one of the first major issues Paul brings up with the, with the Philippians, namely unity. They were facing some internal threats to their unity. Cracks were starting to form in that church's foundation. Little weeds were popping up. And they needed to be dealt with before it led to greater division in the church. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul reminds them of, of the basis of their unity, the picture of their unity, and then he goes on to exhort them to pursue that unity. Although the oneness of the church is a work of the Spirit, God does not want us to simply be passive, but active. God wants us to work hard at, as we learned, denying self, humbling self, and serving others. And that will, through God's power, produce a supernatural oneness in the church. It will knit us together. And God, in turn, will use the the powerful unity of the church, both to magnify his own name and to draw many other people to himself. So we spent a couple weeks already exploring just the the powerful and the essential unity of the church, the church universal and and even local churches. But Paul is not done, though, here in chapter 2. He knows that it's, it's not easy. It's one thing to explain all that, but it's not easy to actually attain it, to do it. The pursuit of unity, it's a challenge. Why? Well, because we're, we're still sinners. We still have the, the sinful, selfish flesh. And as we've learned, it, it cries out daily not to serve others, but to be served. But the Lord leads us in another way. In fact, it's only through the the power and the example of the Lord that we have any hope of actually pursuing and attaining the unity the Lord would have for his church. And so we find in the next passage here in Philippians 2, Paul turns to Christ. For he's the answer to all of the sin that divides us. Divides us from God, divides us from one another. Christ is the answer to that sin. He brings peace. He brings reconciliation. And so we need to remember Christ, follow Christ, even emulate Christ, if we are to have any hope of living out the unity Christ purchased for us on the cross. And so all that being said, Paul now, in verses 5 through 11, he he points us to the example of Christ. The way he does so, though, is, is truly remarkable. This passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it's known as one of the most powerful summaries of the life of Christ in all the New Testament. Many actually believe, like I said earlier, Paul is here capturing and reproducing an early Christian hymn that they used to sing, just telling of the life of Christ. Either way, it certainly does hit all the highlights of Christ's person and work. It is a classic text. It's a profound summary, or better yet, you could say an inspired short story of the life of Jesus. In typical fashion, Paul loads these few verses with really rich teaching and and even doctrine. It could take weeks to peruse through it all. And in fact, we will come back in the weeks to come and and look deeper at what is said about Christ. Anytime you you have Christ in the scriptures, you slow down. That's what this is about, knowing Christ worshiping Christ. So we will be back. But at the same time, for today, I want to make sure we don't lose the big picture of this passage. We often will get down in the trees and you can lose sight of the forest when you get so detailed. 
this passage, it's meant to go together. These verses are meant to be, to read, to be read together and studied together. And so for today, as we get into this, our intention is not to flesh out a whole Christology or, or get too bogged down with theological debate. But first, just to, just to read the text and, and listen to the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus, that we can simply remember and be freshly impacted by his life, by his work. That the truths of his person and work, they're meant to change lives, that they do change lives. The power of God is in the gospel, the good news of Christ. That's what changes lives. So let's just read this this inspired summary by Paul of the, the person, the work of Jesus, and be, and be impacted, be changed. Now, you know, any good story has a beginning, middle, and end. This is no different. So let's just get started here, and we'll read as we go, and look at this story of, of Christ starting at the beginning. So, number one, the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story, really in verse 6, but you can start in verse 5. He begins and says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. We'll stop there for now. As this short story begins, the main character is very clear. It is Jesus Christ Jesus. Now, I think you know, Christ is not his last name. It is a title. And here it comes first. He is Christ Jesus. Christ meaning the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Only we learn here, he's not just the Christ. He's the divine Christ. We get some backstory of this Jesus in verse 6, where we learn that he existed before his time on earth. That's not true of us, but of him, he existed before his time on earth. Before he came to earth, verse 6 says, he existed in the form of God. Now, everyone wants to know, of course, what does that mean, to exist in the form of God? Well, the word for form in Greek is morphe. It has two basic senses. It can be used to refer to one's external appearance. You're outside. Of course, we have a different form than animals. One way we, we can tell someone apart, how they look on the outside. The other sense of this word is, is the, the inner sense, the internal form, your, your inner nature. And that, too, separates us from other creatures and other animals. But on a more fundamental level, we have a, a different nature than animals. Either way, though, it's, it's hard to make this, this verse, this phrase, say anything other than Jesus is equal with God. And since God has no outward form or appearance, God is spirit, a fact which Paul knows well, we have a clear statement that Jesus shares the same nature, the same inner form as God. He existed in the form of God. You see that in verse 6? He existed in the form of God, meaning Jesus is, in essence, in his being, God. He existed that way. This word for exist in verse 6 expresses a person's essential and unchangeable nature. Jesus existed unalterably in the form of God. This is only confirmed elsewhere in Scripture where Jesus is presented not as some creature 
that had a beginning, but as, in fact, the Creator Himself, the eternal, unchanging God. You know, for example, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. You know that verse well. It speaks of Jesus as being God and with God at the same time, which we can only take to mean that Jesus is one with God in essence, but different in person. But Jesus is shown to be co-eternal with, we would say, God the Father. This view that Jesus is part of this, this triune Godhead is only confirmed later in verse 6. Speaking of Jesus still, it says, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, we'll talk about this whole grasping thing in a minute. But notice it says, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Whatever you think happened later, at the very least, it says, at least once, he was equal with God. He had what? Equality with God. Some people think in the incarnation, Jesus lost his deity, like the stories of the old Roman gods or demigods who would give up their immortality for the chance to, to be a man or a woman, to live a life. The problem, of course, is that deity is an unalterable state. To give it up means you never had it in the first place. So the fact that verse 6 clearly states Christ was at least at one point equal with God, actually means he eternally is equal with God. It's not possible for deity to be changed or lost. Christ is equal with God of the same essence. Like Hebrews 1.3 says, Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He existed in the form of God. He was equal with God. It really is a massive conclusion to make. It's, it's clear from Scripture, though, Jesus is divine. But it's an essential truth that separates people. You can't get the gospel right if you don't get Jesus right. And you can't get Jesus right unless you get his identity right, which means you understand he's not just the Messiah. He's the divine Messiah. It's like when Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? One of the most important questions you will ever face, and how you answer that question will, will change a lot. Who do you say that Jesus is? You must see from Scripture and believe that he is the Christ and the Son of God. He is the divine Messiah. And so we have here the beginnings of a, a short story with Jesus who existed as God, equal with God. But of course, like I said earlier, the next big question is, well, did he lose his deity? Because after all, it says he did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You see that? So I'm sure you're wondering, what does that mean? Well, let's start with this whole idea of not regarding his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Harpagmos is a word translated grasped. It originally referred to something seized like plunder or treasure. And it came to mean over time anything that was clutched or prized or treasured. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, all you need is a picture of Gollum in the ring to know what it means to clutch something, to treasure something. How he, It was his precious possession 
Couldn't let it go. Wouldn't let it go. Wouldn't share it with anyone. But Jesus did not regard his divine nature like that. What does that mean? It means that although he existed as God with all of its rights and privileges, he did not regard these selfishly. It's not possible for Jesus to lose his divine nature any more than it's possible for you to lose your human nature. But even though for Jesus, it would not be selfish for him to seek his own glory, to to serve himself, that would not be a selfish thing. He is worthy of supreme glory. If Christ never came to earth and only had all creation serve him eternally, it would be the right thing to do. But in a, a greater selflessness, a humility... He did not regard his glory as something to be used only for himself. He was willing to humble himself and lower himself in order to serve humanity. And this is what it means for Jesus not to regard his equality with God as something to be grasped, as something to be used only for himself. It is not possible for Jesus to lose his divine nature But it is possible for him to forego the rights and the privileges that come with his divine nature. And that's what this is talking about. The rights, the privileges that come with being the Christ, the divine Christ. But he was willing to forsake those. So by way of illustration, picture picture a king sitting on his lofty throne in his royal palace, up high on a mountain, just as the greatest kingdom on earth. He's totally separated from the people below. I mean, he's, he's up in the clouds. He is a regal king. He has nothing to do with the people down there. He's enjoying all the glories of being king. He's got servants who wait on him 24-7. Everything he uses is made of pure gold. He wears the, the finest regal attire. But then a plague strikes the kingdom down below. They're unaffected. They're high up. They're so high up, they they don't even get any of the effect of the plague. In fact, they're immune. But the people below living in filth and mire, they're just being ravaged by this plague. Everyone in the kingdom down below, they're sick. They're dying. In fact, there's no one left to care for them. Even the doctors are all sick and dying. So what does the king do? He has every right to just stay up in his palace and keep being king, enjoy glory as king, doesn't have to do anything. But because he loves his people, he gets up, he leaves his throne, he leaves behind the fancy meals, the gold silverware, the fresh clothes, and he descends to the festering kingdom to help his people. Now, has the king lost his inherent glory? No. Has he lost his throne? No. Has he lost his golden utensils? No, they're actually still his. It's just that at the time, he's not using them. He's not utilizing them. He's not grasping them in order to serve his people. Although he has the right to, he chose not to use his kingship selfishly, but for the good of his people. And that's what Christ did for us. And that's what this verse is describing. Though he was God and still is God, He determined to leave the glories of heaven, the the rights and privileges of his deity. He didn't grasp them, but left them, veiled that glory, entered our world to seek and serve and save his sick people. This condescension, this move downward 
into the muck of humanity did not cost Jesus his deity. That's, again, not even possible. But it did come at the cost of utilizing his glory as God. His rights and privileges would have to be set aside for this mission. He would have to be emptied. Now this gets us to verse 7. You see that in verse 7. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And you're also wondering, well, what does that mean? Now, I did say earlier, we don't want to get too bogged down with theological details, but you got to know, you want to know, so humor me for a little bit here. What does it mean to say that Jesus emptied himself? Well, we got this word in the Greek, this verb, kanao, translated as empty. When we hear empty, we think, well, take a water bottle, pour it out, you've emptied the bottle. You've emptied it of its contents. It has now nothing left on the inside. It is literally empty. You know, if you think of it that way and you apply that to Jesus, you think he came to earth, he emptied himself of that internal divine nature. He's literally emptied of his divinity and he's, he's not God anymore. And that's, that's where you would go. But, of course, that's not the case. And since this is such an important issue, I'll just labor this one a little bit. First, this verb, kanao, it is used every time in the New Testament figuratively, not literally. Never literally of emptying the contents of something. And we would argue that this emptying here must likewise be figurative. For again, like we said before, how can God literally lose his divinity? If you lose it, it means you you never had it. We've already established that Jesus was God by nature. It says earlier in the same passage, actually, just before, he had the form of God, the very nature of God. He existed as God. That's something that cannot be lost, changed, or altered. And so instead, here, emptying refers not to the loss of divinity. It can only mean, as we said before, the loss of of the rights, the privileges, the experience of the glory that were, were his as divine. He emptied himself of the rights and the privileges of deity, not deity itself. This is very consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Jesus appears as a man, but his divine nature peeks through. At times he manifests his divine nature, lifts that veil, the veil of his human flesh, which veiled his glory for others to see. For example, at the transfiguration. We could also add that for Jesus to give up his divine nature, I mean, that would go against his very purpose for coming to earth. He came to to die for us, to save us, to be a sacrifice, to make atonement for sins. To do that, he had to be a man, to be a substitute for other humans. But he also had to be divine, to be a perfect substitute, a sufficient substitute. You can't even pay for your own sins let alone that of humanity. So how could a mere man, Jesus, die on the cross and pay for all of our sins? Only because of his divine nature. So Jesus emptying himself, as it says in the NASB, does not mean that he lost his deity or a single divine attribute. He did not. That's foreign to the context, foreign to the language of the New Testament. Paul's already said twice in verse 6 that he was divine. Rather, Jesus set aside the independent exercise of his divine rights and privileges. That's your one-liner if you need one. He set aside 
the independent exercise of his divine rights and privileges. If it's still a little hazy, look, Paul himself clarifies what he means by emptying in the next two phrases. These phrases actually modify emptying himself. Look at verse 7 again. These clarify what it means for him to empty himself, whatever that means. Verse 7 says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Does it say he emptied himself and he lost his omniscience? He lost his omnipresence. He lost his divine nature. No. Paul himself clarifies he emptied himself. And what that means is he took on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. As he set aside his divine rights and privileges, he self-limited himself to take on human flesh. It says Jesus took the form of a bondservant, was made in the likeness of men, This is actually pretty huge. You see that word form again. He took the form of a bondservant. Same word for form as used in verse 6. He existed in the form of God, but then took on, added the form of a man. This means Jesus did not merely take on the appearance of a man. He wasn't just like a hologram. Even though he existed in the form of God in the incarnation, He took on or added to himself a second nature, a fully human nature. And so actually, when you you think about it, this this emptying in verse 7 of Jesus, where he emptied himself of his rights and privileges as divine, in reality, though, it was not a subtraction, but an addition. In the incarnation, Jesus did not lose a divine nature. Rather, the humility was in gaining a human nature taking on a human nature. This was real. Jesus was fully man. He took the form or nature of a man. His humanity was not just a cloak or a shell in which his real divine nature resided, although his divine nature was still present. No, but somehow his divine nature came together with his new perfect human nature at the same time in the one person of Jesus Christ, such that we can say, He was fully God and fully man at the same time. Now, you get to that point and you kind of just kind of have to stop. Because how much further can you go without your mind just blowing up? It's not a contradiction, but it is a paradox, which is a word we we use to describe two things which are true. We just don't know how they can be true at the same time. We don't have the, the, the brain power to figure it out. It hasn't been revealed. How can... One person, Jesus, possessed two natures, one human, one divine, at the same time. We don't fully know. But at the same time, I I take some comfort in that because don't you want there to be some things you can't fully understand about God? If you could fully understand God, he's not God. Either you're God or he's not, if you can fully comprehend his ways and his works. At the same time, this is simply, though, one of those truths That is impossible to fully understand, but necessary to believe that Jesus, the divine Jesus, took on the form of man. He was fully God and fully man. But notice the special nuance, though. And here we'll get more towards that. That's carrying on with the story of Jesus. Jesus took on the form of what? It doesn't say he took on the form of a king or a ruler, 
or a politician, a billionaire, a businessman, a military general. It says he took on the form of a slave. Literally the word for slave, a bondservant. One who owned nothing, not even his own life. One who had no rights and privileges. And of course that was on purpose. But notice the contrast. Jesus went from having all rights and privileges as divine to emptying himself, those rights and privileges, taking on the form of a, of a slave and having no rights and privileges. He went from owning everything to, in the incarnation as a man, owning nothing. He owned nothing. In fact, Pastor John MacArthur has made a, a good observation here in his commentary. He writes, quote, When Jesus came into this world, he borrowed everything. A place to be born, a place to lay his head, a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, an animal to ride into the city, a room for the Passover, a tomb to be buried in, end quote. This all just comes with the territory of being a servant. He owned nothing. He set all aside to be a servant, as we know, the suffering servant. Think back to that, the picture of the benevolent king. His people are all dying from the plague, so he goes outside his palace to the sick. He's the only one capable to serve them. For some reason, he's immune, so he's down there. He's feeding them. He's bathing them. He's clothing them. He's treating them even as they lay dying in their own waste. All the while, his clothes become filthy, and he's going hungry because he's so busy serving them. He's taking on the role of their servant. Is he their servant? Well, is he still their king? Yes, he's still their king. Does he still reign? Yeah, he's still actually reigning. Does he still have all all the power and the glory that were his as king? Yes, he does. But for the time being, to help his people in desperate need, he's, he's veiled all that glory, and he's down there among them, taking on the status of, of their servant. He's left the glory he enjoyed in the palace so that he could serve the people, and that's what Christ did in the Incarnation. He left the glories of his status in heaven, taking on human flesh, becoming one of us that he might serve us. Well, needless to say, it's quite the beginning of a story. And it's take a little longer. We've had to labor through a few theological issues. You've got to do it when you get to Philippians 2. It's just too important. But overall, though, we have the story of, of God himself who came to earth, taking on the form of man, not to be served, but to serve. It's quite the makings of, of a story, of a good story, and it's true. makes us wonder what will come of this trip to earth. And so we can find next the middle of the story, the beginning of the story, next the middle of the story. Verse 8. Let's keep going. Look at verse 8. It says next that Christ being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The focus now shifts to the viewpoint of those who saw Jesus. He came to earth and was found in appearance as a man. And here, now we are talking about outward appearance. The problem is most identified Jesus only as a man, not as God. Think of that humiliation. Not only did he humble himself by taking on a human nature, but no one recognized him 
as the king of kings and gave him the glory he was due. Instead, they called him a liar, a sinner, a criminal, even demon-possessed. But Jesus just responded by humbling himself further and further. If we were in his sandals, we probably would have thrown the towel aside at some point, veiling our deity, and just busted out our divine power and started zapping some people. I mean, how long would you put up with his treatment if you really were the king? There's a show you probably heard, you know, called Undercover Boss. Some CEO of a company, he puts on a disguise, and he takes a low-level job at his company just to see how things are being run there at the, at the lowest levels. So imagine you're like the CEO of 7-Eleven or something, and you get on the disguise, you, you become a store clerk or just a cleaner. And your store manager, though, he treats you like a dog. He yells at you, swears at you, mistreats you, withholds your pay, doesn't give you overtime pay. He's treating you terribly. At what point would you have enough? What would it take for you just to, to take off the disguise and say, hey, pal, guess what? I'm actually the CEO and you're fired. It probably wouldn't take that long. But Jesus came. He humbled himself. He placed himself under the power and authority of sinful men. And he remained obedient to the Father's plan, even to the point of death. He went all the way for the sake of his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just think of his death. He was found guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be who he was, the divine Messiah, the Son of God. So they slapped him, they beat him, they punched him, they stripped him, they whipped him, they spat upon him, they taunted him, they mocked him, they plucked out his beard, they put a crown of thorns on his head, they made him carry his own cross, they drove basically railroad spikes through his hands and feet, and then they brutally crucified him. And all the while he just stood by. He was their creator, he's their king who came to serve them, and he just Stood by. At at the same time, at any point, he could have called down 72,000 angels. Just call them down, wipe everybody out. But he humbled himself to the point of death. He was doing this on purpose. This was the mission. This is how he was going to save these people. He had to suffer God's wrath in substitution for his enemies. Christ's obedience to the Father to pay for the sins of man continued to the point of death. Paul says, verse 8, even death on a cross. Paul says, even death on a cross to highlight the humiliating nature of crucifixion. Crucifixion, part of Christ's story. It was invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans. Not only a cruel and an excruciating way to, way to die, but also a painful and shameful way to die, rather. No Roman citizen would ever be subjected to it, no matter the crime. The Jews thought if you were crucified, it meant you're, you're outside the covenant. You're outside God's people. You, you're, you're cursed. You can't possibly be a, a person of God. But indeed, Christ was cursed for our sakes, that he might redeem us from the effects of the curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. But this fate explains the incarnation in the first place. 
This is the reason for the story to begin with. Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came down that he might bring humanity up. The king came to rescue the sick in his kingdom. Now our story reaches a climax on the cross, but thankfully we know that's not the end. That's not the end of the story. Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He died. He was buried. But his mission was not a failure. So let's read on now to see the end of the story. Now the end of the story. Look at verse 9. Verses 9 through 11. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Though he was laid in the grave, he would not stay in the grave, but rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Christ did not regard the rights, the privileges of deity as something to be used only for himself, but he humbled himself, assumed the very nature of a man, and then died for man. But for this reason, because of his humility, he was then highly exalted. Think back one more time to our king who left the glory of his palace to be with his people, stricken by the plague. He entered their world. His hands, his clothes, clothes rather, had been dirtied by their filth. He nursed them back to health. He restored them. After all this, though, after he had completed his mission, after he had saved his people, will he not then return to his palace? Will he not then go back and, and sit on his throne? Reclaim his seat? Of course he will. And when he does so, his glory will be magnified even more because now all those people he saved, they'll be singing his praise forever. Jesus likewise dove into the swamp of humanity to rescue us from the mire that we would sing his praise forever. But his condescension, it was not to last forever. After rising from the dead, Jesus was given the name above every name You see that in verses 9 through 11. His name emphasizes his character, his divine essence, his supreme rank, his glory. It is an incomparable name. And at that name, every knee will bow, every knee will worship him for that which he is due. You're probably wondering, what's the name? People often ask, you know, what is the name above all names? What's the actual name? Some think it's Jesus, his, his earthly name, Jesus. Others believe, well, the name hasn't been revealed yet. But I actually think the name above all names in the context is is Lord. Lord is the name, based on verse 11. Used here, the name Lord connotes his deity, his sovereignty, his glory, his honor. And it's a name truly shared by no other. People name their kids Jesus. I have not seen someone who's named their kid Lord. And rightly so, and even if they did, it wouldn't matter. It's the name that is shared by no other. It's a name of sovereign authority. 
And it's a name that will demand the response found in verse 10. Every knee will bow at that name. Humanity will be brought before Jesus. He will be affirmed as the sovereign Lord of creation. And every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. That that person, this divine Christ, he is Lord. Notice verse 10, it says, every knee will bow. And when it says every, it means every. Every knee. Those who are in heaven, on earth, under the earth will bow the knee. Those three categories, we're not really meant to split them apart and worry about them. It just means everything, everyone, comprehensive language. No matter when you live or where you live, every person from every age in that final day of reckoning will bow the knee to Christ. This includes believers, those who willingly bow the knee in love and faith. But it also includes the lost, those who persisted in their rebellion In the end, they will not be able to escape the confession that Jesus is Lord. They will confess. But at that point, it will be too late for them. That confession will not save them. It will only condemn them. When all is said and done, though, this story ends with the glory of God. God receives all the glory because that's why he made the world. That's why he allowed man to fall and and rebel. That's why God sent Jesus to die. And that's why God exalted Jesus as Lord. This is the story of Jesus, story of God, story of man, really. It all begins and ends with with God's glory. Is this a happy ending or a tragic ending? Well, in a way, that, that depends on you. Will you be one who bows the knee willingly to Christ as Lord right now? in faith, in submission? Or will you be one whose knees are later broken into submission, so to speak? Will you confess Christ in this life as your Lord and Savior before it's too late? Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. To confess Jesus as Lord means he is the sovereign of your life right now. He rules your life and you live like it. You do what he says because well, you love him. And, and your life shows that Christ is your Lord. Make certain that you know Christ. Make certain of your salvation. For day will come when it is too late. And that day will come like a thief in the night. The story of Jesus here, summarized in Philippians 2. It's really the story of the entire Bible. The Bible is the revelation of God and his plan of redemption. And that is highlighted most in Christ himself, who's the exact representation of his nature. And like all good stories, this one is meant not just to fill your mind with truth, but to leave an impact, to change you. This brings us now finally to the moral of the story. You can see in the beginning, middle, and end, but there's actually a moral to this story. And it's found actually in verse 5, the very beginning, which we skipped over. Look at the beginning of the passage again, verse 5. Did you notice how he starts? He actually starts with the conclusion, which is, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the moral of the story. Paul's not telling this story just for the fun of it. 
It's not to entertain. It's also not merely to fill your mind with truth, although there is a ton of great doctrine in this passage. But he's telling this to motivate you to action. The moral of the story is that you should exalt Christ as Lord right now by following his example. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us all about Christ. Now, I just want to be real clear. Jesus did not die on the cross merely to give us an example of being a good person or or how to serve others. That was not the main point of the cross. Jesus died to make a real substitutionary atonement for sins. Like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how we're saved. But that being said, we still do find an example on the cross, an example of how to live by Jesus. After we are saved by faith in his atoning death, we also find him to be an example of how we are to live thereafter. So that's why Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves. What attitude is he talking about? Well, it's the attitude that just we saw defined in the incarnation. It's an attitude of, selflessness. Jesus did not regard his divine rights and privileges selfishly to be used only for himself, but for the benefit of others. And secondly, it's an attitude of service, humble service. He humbled himself to serve us, even at a cost. This is an attitude of selfless, sacrificial service. It's an attitude where you give up your power, your prestige, your possessions, your time for others, not for yourself, but to seek and serve others. In fact, we find Jesus perfectly modeling all that we were told to do back in verses 3 and 4. Remember from last week, the pursuit of unity? What, what did Paul say? Look back at Philippians 2, 3. He commands us, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, it's all about this humble, selfless, sacrificial service of others. That's the moral of the story of Christ in this passage, who is also the means of our salvation. He's also the example of our sanctification. The king who stooped down to save us now wants us to live like him, and this is how. If you have received Christ, if he's your king, you are called to follow him now in this same humble, selfless, sacrificial service. And remember, that attitude That's also the key that unlocks the church's oneness, the church's unity, which is what this whole passage is really about. As we've been learning, our pride, our selfishness, that's what wrecks all things. It wrecks our lives, it wrecks our relationships, it wrecks humanity. From the beginning, all sin is a reflection of our fallenness, which aims to seek and serve self. But wherever selfishness flourishes, there will be conflict, there will be division. It's these same self-serving sins that have separated us from one another and from God. But Christ came to overcome all that, 
making peace, and leading us in the way of humble, sacrificial service. And you need to follow him in that way. So first, you have to ask, have you received forgiveness through his selfless act on the cross? That's always step one. And so first and foremost, I urge you to believe in him and to bow the knee to him now as your Lord. This story, it's, it's a true story of God's plan of redemption for this world through his son, Christ Jesus. And you must now confess him as your Lord, not just Lord, your Lord, to be saved and be transformed. And as you are, are then transformed by faith, then walk in this newness of life, which includes laying down your life now for others. Now it's your turn to lay down your life in love for others. Remember back from verse 3 we learned is this selfish ambition and this empty conceit. It drives so many of our actions. You see, in your flesh, your, your fallen nature, your flesh and my flesh wants nothing more than to serve itself. You want every knee to bow at your name. You want all the glory, all the praise for yourself. That, that's at the core of our, our fallen natures. And such selfish attitudes, they can even taint our acts of service. Have you ever served someone else, for example, just to be noticed? Like maybe your spouse. Maybe you got some friends, your old friends coming into town. There's a concert on Saturday night you really want to go to. And so you spend all day Friday cleaning the house and serving your spouse. Just You'll do anything they ask. And then Saturday comes around and you say, hey, my friends are in town. I really want to go to this concert. You know, I served you all day yesterday. Think I can go? Now, that's not really service, though. You're just trying to build up some relational capital to cash it in when you want to be served. But you see, selfishness can even infect our service. But as you behold the story of Christ, hopefully you come to realize it's all about him. It's about his name, his glory, his exaltation. We bow the knee to him. We live now for him and his glory, for he is worthy. And that fact should inform and transform our lives and our service. And we're not serving others for the praise and recognition of our name. We're serving others. We're living life for the praise and recognition of his name. This in turn leads to true, humble, selfless, sacrificial service, which pleases him, and that should be enough. Just knowing that you are pleasing to him, that should be enough to please you. It's all you need. You know, maybe one Wednesday night you come to church. The tables aren't set up for Bible study. It's early. So you say, you know, I'm going to serve. I'm going to set them up. So you set them up all by yourself. And then people start filing in and nobody recognizes your work. They thought, oh, they were already there. No one thanks you. No one recognizes you. How would that make you feel? Would you feel the need to let people know? Like, you know, actually, I set these up myself a little earlier today. You so you can earn some praise, some favor. We have to realize that same attitude, you might not realize this, but that same attitude is that which later leads to envy, jealousy, division, strife, conflict, dispute, because it's, it's, at, its at its core, it's about self. Any attitude springing from self, driving towards self, will lead to this division. Instead, rather, 
Be content knowing the Lord knows your service. And just serve others for his name's sake. Just serve the king and be pleased knowing that he is pleased and that's enough. You're exalting his name when you do so. And that attitude, that true type of service, that is what truly binds the church together. That's, that's the means through which this unity will come that we've been learning about. And so this morning, I really want you to, to consider, to contemplate the person, the work, the story of Christ, which we are now to follow. Which describes you? Contentment or complainer? Service or selfishness? Giver or taker? Examine your heart, your relationship to the Lord this morning, even, even to this local church. Do you come here merely as a seat warmer? You come on Sunday mornings. You get your, your fix of religion. And then you bolt out the door right away like the building's on fire to get back to your real life, you know, the things you really care about. If that's you, you're, you're robbing yourself of a greater joy. You're robbing the church of unity. You're robbing us of a greater impact we can have as well. Instead, come to find joy in the Lord and his people and in serving them and serving him. Like the Lord himself, live each day, Sunday included, asking, not how can I be served, how can I serve others this morning? How can I encourage others? How can I pray for others? How can I minister to others? This is the Lord's intended gathering of his church where he wants us to serve one another. And if everyone in the church would do this, you'd see the church continue to grow more and more in love and unity. And remember, the Lord uses that unity such that when the unbeliever enters our midst, he or she says, I I can sense God is in this place. God is with these people. Because in the world, no no one's like this. No one is selfless like this. And that's true because no one has our God. No one has our Lord who served us first. So be faithful to serve the Lord and to serve others each and every day. And as you do so, then you will receive the only praise that really matters. It's the praise that comes from the Lord on the last day for those who bowed the knee to him as Lord and served him. The praise of well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us serve him and let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we pray to you as our divine Messiah, our Lord, our Savior. And we are among those now who willingly, by your grace, bow the knee to you as that Lord, as that Savior. You are the only entrance. You are the door. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. You are the only way. The Father sent you to humble yourself, to take on flesh, to live a life of no recognition, no praise, no glory. And yet you did so, Lord, out of this supreme love for us, this humility aimed toward loving us, that you would lay down your life to bring us to new life, to bring us to eternal life, to bring us up. Lord, as we remember your story, this true story of your life, death, resurrection, and exaltation, I pray it infects us and reminds us and and drives us now to do the same. Not that we can save others, Lord, per se, but we can lay down our lives in love for others and point them to you, the power of this gospel, this good news of the king who came and and served us first. May this be the fire that ignites and drives our unity in in the church abroad and this church local as well, Lord. 
that we may just revel in the glory that is yours and the joy that is ours because of Christ. And I pray, Lord, as the world sees the unity of of your church, the love, the service of your church, they're impacted freshly and driven aback. It's not normal. Only God can be the answer for this type of love and unity found here. Indeed, that's true, Lord. May it be true for us as well as we leave remembering and, and worshiping Christ who gave himself for us. We do that now and want to continue to do that now. In his name we pray. Amen.